HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of Heritage Radio Network on Tour was recorded at Slow Food Nations 2017, a festival to taste and explore a world of good, clean, and fair food for all. Slow Food Nations took place in Denver over the weekend of July 14th through 16th and included panels, workshops, roundtables, cooking demos, farmer's markets, food tastings, and more. Heritage Radio Network's Kat Johnson traveled from Bushwick to the Mile High City to report on this first-of-its-kind international gathering presented by Slow Food USA. Heritage Radio Network on Tour is made possible by the support of the Julia Child Foundation. Good afternoon. My name is McKenna, um, and I'm delighted to welcome you to this session. Uh, Just a little bit about Slow Food. Slow Food is a nonprofit committed to inspiring individuals and communities to change the world through food that is good, clean, and fair for all. Uh, Will you uh, take a minute to make a donation if you feel so inclined? We would be very grateful for your support. Uh, If you go to loveslowfood.com this weekend, any amount will make you a Slow Food member. Um, And this session is The Color of Farming, Um, and I will now pass it back over to Angela um, so she can get you all started today. So thanks again for being here, and thanks to our presenters. Thank you all for being here. As was mentioned, this is a panel called The Color of Farming. And in a nutshell, what we're talking about is the vestiges of a belief system in white supremacy and capitalism that has created this industrial production system that's left us with social exploitation, social oppression, and environmental degradation. So our work is how do we live within that belief and practice system and dismantle it and create, as we say, within the slow food movement, a system that is good, clean, and fair for all. So that's our work. I was blessed to have been part of the Food Justice Working Group, who was given the task of trying to ensure that the questions of food justice, food sovereignty, uh, food access, equity, were woven into the fabric of Slow Food Nations. And we've designed a variety of events, activities, including this panel. Uh, And part of our work is not to just take the assignment 
and end our purpose at Slow Food Nations, but to extend our work within the confines of the Slow Food USA organization in the future. So we welcome you all to be a part of that ongoing effort. You know, you can leave us your name, contact, take one of our cards, and because we're going to be having other kinds of meetings and considerations and webinars and who knows what will come out of this, okay? We've also developed, as part of this working group, a food justice resource guide that will be available online on the uh, Facebook page and things like that. And we also encourage other contributions to that resource guide, okay? So uh, here we are within uh, the confines of an, of, of an hour conversation uh, and, and discussion, uh, not meant to try to answer every question and deal with every nuance of the last 500 years that we're factoring in. So we have a, a panel of, uh, that we've taken time to really be selective about folk and where they were from working with. On my left, and, and we'll all get introduced here our, our, ourselves here in a few minutes, Kai Wynn from Louisiana, Veggie Farmers Cooperative, Rudy Arandando from the uh, Latino Worker of Farmers and Ranchers Association, Loretta Bay with the Churro Sheep Presidium, and Angela Harris, former professor of law at UC Davis. And we're going to begin with, with Angela and she's going to kind of give us a kind of a historical context. But now be aware, I hope you're aware, that there are some bad uh, uh, sisters in California, like Kamala Harris, and here's Angela Harris. Kamala's a, sen Kamala's a senator. <laughs> I would like to say I'm related to Kamala, but I am not, <laughs> as far as I know. Um, thank you all for coming out um, on this afternoon. We were just talking about how it's kind of a sleepy time in the afternoon, so I really appreciate you being here. Um, first thing I want to say is that my role on the panel really is kind of the kickoff. These folks are the experts, and you're going to hear from them a lot more. I'm just here to kind of give context and um, repeat some of the historical stuff that you may or may not know. Um, and I'm a law professor. I teach or taught. I just retired um, at the University of California, Davis. And one of the classes that I regularly taught and probably will continue to teach in the future is food justice. Um, but it's a subject that I've really started learning about just in the last couple of years, my work comes out of critical race theory. So I teach courses about the history of racial discrimination, white supremacy, um, and its impact on all aspects of American life. And so it's from there that I started getting interested in environmental justice. And over the years, more and more of my EJ students were really interested in food. So I started learning about food justice. So I'm really on a path of learning. And as I say, you got, that these guys are the people who truly know, but I'm the professor and we like to talk, so I can talk. Um, so just a little bit um, about myself to, to um, set the stage. So I'm, I'm from southern Ohio, um, hour out of Cincinnati, a very small town called Yellow Springs, and it's a college town. It's surrounded by farms. 
Um, but growing up, I was never involved in farming. My family was not a farming family. Um, my parents moved to Yellow Springs because my dad worked for the local Air Force base. And so we went to school with a lot of farmers' kids, um, a lot of kids who were doing 4-H, Future Farmers of America. There were so- a lot of soybeans, a lot of hogs, Jersey cattle. Um, there was a lot of farming going on, but I was not part of that world. Uh, my dad actually comes from farming people, um, not large-scale farming, but homestead farming in Virginia. Um, and he tells the story of traveling from Philadelphia, where he grew up, to visit his cousins and relatives on the farm in Virginia. Um, and he remembers uh, one day, uh, I think one of his aunts, wringing a chicken's neck and watching the chicken run around with its neck broken. And that's kind of one of its, his uh, big memories. But my dad also told me another story, which which was about his own father, um, uh, my paternal grandfather. And my grandfather's most vivid memory of Virginia was seeing a black man who had been lynched hanging from a tree. And after seeing that as a young boy, it was my grandfather's aspiration to get out of the country and get out uh, the the rural uh, area, get out of Virginia. So he moved to Philadelphia, and it was an urban setting in which my dad grew up. Um, My parents ended up back in farm country when my dad, with his degree in physics, could not get a job in private industry other than a janitorial position. Um, But he got this job at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in southern Ohio. Um, And that's how I came to live in farm country. So fast forwarding a couple years, um, as I've said, uh, my teaching at the law school is mostly about race. uh, But over the years, I started getting interested in uh, environmental justice and then food justice. And one fact that I came across when I was preparing a lecture for my food justice course really stuck with me. And that was a factoid from USDA that in 2007, 80% of U.S. farmers were white men. Um, And that really kind of took me back, and I started thinking about that. Why would that be the case? How did we get there? Uh, Particularly given our history, um, just thinking of African Americans, our history of being an agricultural people, right? That's the purpose of why we were here in the first place. So... Uh, That really got me started on this quest to understand more about the color of farming. And towards that end, I've been doing some um, reading in history um, and also talking to folks who are contemporary farmers, both er rural and urban. Um, And so I want to share just a little bit uh, about what I've learned. And I apologize in advance to those of you who heard Ricardo Salvador's talk uh, because he really set the, the big picture stage. And a lot of what I'm going to say um, kind of just fits in a little bit into his, his big picture. Um, so the racialization of farming, so the way that race got woven into farming, of course, didn't happen by accident. And the way I talk about it with my students um, is to talk about Thomas Jefferson, founding father. Right? So on the one hand, Jefferson famously viewed family farming as the life best suited for democracy. Um, he felt that independent small farmers, yeoman farmers, would be free citizens because they were unbought, unbossed, they were independent, they could make their own living. And his love for the idea of family farming gave rise to national legislation like the Homestead Act, uh, which gave ordinary Americans access to cheap land for agriculture. 
On the other hand, Jefferson himself was not really a family farmer. He had a lot of other things going on and too much going on to run a farm himself. So his own farm uh, followed a very different model, um, but also a quintessentially American model, and that's the plantation. Um, and as all you know, plantation farming, especially in cotton, combined with northern manufacturing, is what built the incredible wealth of the United States. So how does Thomas Jefferson reconcile these things? On the one hand, he's all about family farming as the way to make this country great as a political entity. On the other hand, in his own life, he's pursuing a very different model of farming that has nothing to do with democracy. Uh, well, he takes the same path that many other founding fathers took, which is he believes that only some people are capable, capable of governing themselves in a, in a democratic way. So as you may know, Jefferson was the one who speculated in his famous essay, Notes on the State of Virginia, that Negroes were inherently inferior to whites physically, mentally, and morally. Um, he liked Indians a lot better than that. Um, he thought they had some capacity to grow. But he didn't have any problem with taking their land and moving them somewhere else. So race, along with gender, becomes the way that our country justifies calling itself a democracy while strictly limiting who can be part of that democracy, we the people. Okay. Um, so the racialization of farming, though, doesn't start with Thomas Jefferson, and it doesn't end with him either. Um, the racialization of farming happens with, through government policy, federal, state, and local, and it really comes to um, define both the family farming model and the plantation farming model. So, as I mentioned, the Federal Homestead Act provided individual families with the opportunity to, uh, to start family farms, giving them access to inex inexpensive land um, along what was then the frontier. Uh, but where did that land come from? It was taken from Native people, um, and Native people were moved off the most fertile agricultural lands um, through a federal policy of treaties, violence, and fraud. Um, and one of the cases, probably one of the first cases that in, um, beginning law students read um, when they first get to law school is in property class. Um, and we read and talk about a case called Jefferson, uh, not Jefferson, Johnson versus McIntosh, uh, which uh, is decided in the early 19th century. And that case explains how only Europeans can own land, right, in, with full title. Right? Why? Because the official policy of the Europeans who had discovered the New World was that as non-Christian savages, Indians were not capable of developing land property, properly. They were just going to leave the land a wilderness as opposed to the white settlers who were going to make the land productive. And that's really the, the founding, one of the founding cases of American property law, based on this idea of the doctrine of discovery. Okay. Um, so you can see that um, people of color are getting locked out of the land ownership system and access to farming, even as the nation is getting started. And even after the Civil War, Homestead Act land seldom got to black people. Right? Um, there, you may know the famous story of 40 acres and a mule, the demand that the freed slaves had after the Civil War. Um, since we had put so much labor into the land, the idea was that now we should own some of that land, be able to farm it for ourselves. Um, but uh, 
the former slaves never got those 40 acres um, that they were promised. Um, and those who were able to purchase land often found themselves later run off the land, um, again, through a combination of violence, uh, fraud, um, or just being cheated. Uh, more subtle but just as effective has been the slow starvation of um, black family farms through depriving them of access to price supports, access to credit, access to new knowledge and technologies. Um, and this was done with the knowing and deliberate collusion of the federal government through USDA. So historians have documented, and it's really interesting, that the greatest period of land loss by black farmers was not right in um, the period after the Civil War. Um, it was during the Civil Rights Movement. It was in the 1960s that the greatest velocity of black land loss happened. And in part, that's because USDA was actively supporting Jim Crow um, and resisting civil rights. So there's currently five anti-discrimination lawsuits going on against USDA. And Pigford versus Glickman is one of the most famous one. It was on, brought on behalf of black farmers. It settled in 1999 and was one of the largest settlements against an agency of the federal government ever, with about a billion dollars paid out to African-American farmers as of 2012. So that's part of our history that we don't often know about. Um, but this was a huge settlement based on the fact that it was clear that for decades and decades, USDA, again, had colluded to deprive black farmers um, of um, access to credit and access to technical knowledge. In addition, um, there's another case against USDA, Keep Siegel versus Veneman, on behalf of Native American farmers with a settlement that was approved in 2011. There's a case called Garcia versus Johans on behalf of Latino farmers, still ongoing, uh, with USDA developing an administrative claims process, which has had a lot of problems. Um, and by the way, there's also a case called Love versus Johans on behalf of women farmers. Um, again, all based on this involvement of USDA. Um, so that's how family farming then, really the history of family farming is really um, also a history of racial exclusion and exploitation. Um, meanwhile, the plantation system, as we know, built obviously on unpaid labor, on land taken from other people, didn't go away after the Civil War. Right? It just transformed. Um, and one of the things that um, stayed the same, however, was the idea of race. So one of the things that we see happening after slavery ends is we see the emergence of the sharecropping system, which kept poor folks in the South, both black and white, in grinding poverty for decades, while be benefiting a small group of elite farmers who used their economic power to control political power in the South. So when the New Deal arrives, for example, it brings in a new system of price supports, low-cost loan programs, and technical support for commodity farming, which is kind of the, the origin of what we now call the Farm Bill. Uh, but who benefited from that system? Primarily the inheritors of the plantation elite. Meanwhile, agricultural workers were cut out of New Deal protections like the Fair Labor Standards Act because the plantation elite wanted to keep their cheap labor force intact. And when the South finally does mechanize, it's disproportionately black farm labor that gets displaced. 
Another way that the plantation system gets transformed is in the West, which comes to rely on immigrant labor. So in my home state, California, the plantation system relied on various waves of immigrants from India, from China, from Japan, eventually Mexico and Central America. Each group initially gets praised for being hardworking um, and then is prevented from climbing the ladder from farm work into farm ownership. Um, again, often in openly racialized terms, um, today tends to be more about the question of whether you're undocumented or, or not, um, and the absence of legal papers is what keeps uh, farm labors overwhelmingly um, disempowered in terms of being able to uh, argue, uh, fight for their rights. And then a third way that the plantation has survived is that it swallowed the family farm. So independent small farmers today everywhere are suffering economically from the concentrated market power of global corporations. All farmers of all colors are now under the thumb of this transform plantation system, right? Um, and many of you may know the statistics about the huge levels of concentration, corporate concentration of ownership in things like processing. Um, and then the last thing I want to say about this history is that it's really a global history. Um, and in some ways it goes back to European colonialism. So it's not just the United States that adopted this doctrine of discovery that I told you about. The doctrine of discovery was part of international law. Um, indigenous people were dispossessed of their land in the Caribbean, in Canada, in Brazil, in Australia, and in New Zealand under exactly the same notion. Right? And it's not just the U.S. that used racial theories to justify plantation uh, systems. England, France, Portugal, and Spain all used theories of racial inferiority to justify plantation systems, even in countries where now uh, whites are the minority. So in the process, we got a food system that helps produce and sustain race and class inequalities. And it's a system that now uses international trade law, domestic immigration law, and intellectual property law to preserve those inequalities between the global south and the global north. Um, so what do we do? Um, so this planet needs a new food system. We need a system that doesn't exploit people. We need a food system that doesn't exploit resources. Um, and how do we build it? Um, folks on the panel are going to talk about their perspectives on this. Um, what I tell my law students is that taking on a project as big as this means that we have to follow that old advice to think globally and act locally. Um, so on kind of the global front, there's an organization called La Via Campesina, which is an international organization fighting for a new international legal agreement to protect small farmers around the world from being displaced. In the U.S., uh, we don't have any kind of basic charter for access to food, access to land, access to farming. Right? But um, there are things that uh, we can do, and again, thinking about what law students to do, can do at the uh, kind of macro level to make that path a little bit easier. For example, my state of California recognizes the right to water now as a human right. So one of the things that I encourage my students to, to think about and to fight for is how do we develop these big principles, kind of rights-based principles to help people um, have some measure of food sovereignty and security. 
On the local level, there's tons of things that lawyers can do. So again, we need litigators to continue anti-discrimination suits, to challenge ag-gag laws, enforce environmental regulations. Um, but we also need lawyers who don't m maybe want to go to court, uh, but know a lot about how to write a contract or how to read a contract. Uh, lawyers who understand how to uh, build a cooperative as opposed to the, uh, the for-profit corporate form. We need lawyers who can work with municipal and regional planners to design institutions that connect rural farmers with urban consumers um, and that allow urban gardens and farms um, to exist without destroying quality of life in the neighborhood. We need lawyers who can uh, create community land trusts, negotiate contracts, and invent new legal structures that nobody's seen for com uh, preserving community control over land and water. Uh, we need lawyers who can uh, understand how to structure deals uh, for access to credit, like direct public offerings to support farming and food-related businesses. Um, but the biggest thing that I tell my students um, is that transforming the food system is badly needed racial justice work. Um, sometimes people want to put race to the side and say, well, it's really all about class. It's about economics. There was a moment before our current administration when people like to say we were all post-racial now. We got past all that race stuff. Um, but the American history of farming shows how race and economic exploitation have been tied together since the beginning. And the fight for economic justice is also a fight for racial justice. We're trying to uproot a system of exploitation at every level, and that means communities of color at the front lines of the struggle, whether it's about organizing farm workers, trying to prevent further black land loss, um, protecting tribal sovereignty so the First Nations can govern and steward their own resources, or putting more grocery stores into food deserts. Um, and it's also about um, not just institutions and regulations to change the way that we grow and distribute food, or even it's not just about obesity and public health. Um, I've been interviewing several young folks, especially urban ag folks in the Bay Area, black and Latino, um, who are doing urban agriculture against their parents' wishes. Uh, their families say, you know, we didn't put you to co into college for you to go and be a farmer, right? We didn't raise you to go pick some fruit. Um, but for a lot of the young folks that I'm interviewing, urban ag is about recovering farming traditions outside the conventional system, whether it's biodynamics or what they now call permaculture, the fancy word, but is part of a lot of folk traditions that folks remember their grandmothers and their great-grandmothers telling them about. So growing food is also about coming to terms with and healing the plantation past. Um, and that's a national conversation, a national project that we all badly need. Um, in addition, reviving traditional knowledge and cultural practices can help build a regenerative future for all of us. So people of color really need to be part of um, the forefront of this struggle as we try to build a new uh, farm system. And again, food justice is racial justice. Thanks. Thank you, Angela. Thank you. 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 Wonderful. She has a document in the law review journal <laughs> called The Color Farming. Look it up. It's about 44 pages. The day she summarized. But it's a document that we should all have in our backpack. Okay, it covers 
this whole sense of the last centuries. So thank you so much. So today we have a panel of uh, three other individuals who are practitioners of what Angela has talked about. Uh, I want to say quickly that we we had a fourth panel member named Matthew Rayford, uh, who's a chef, farmer uh, in Georgia, that flew in here, uh, I think it was yesterday, had a family emergency, had to fly right back. So we just want to send him, you know, good vibrations, good love uh, for him uh, being here and taking care of some family business. Um, Now, so on my right, I have uh, Aretta Begay. And we've asked all the panel to kind of address a couple of questions before we open it up to those who are here, okay? And talk a little bit about the role of collaboration partnerships in what you're doing to address these kinds of historical and and current structural racism uh, confinements, okay? Questions of collaboration, partnership. And then we're going to pose another question that talks more about where are you headed in the future? Five years from now, what will you be doing? And what do you want to be doing? Okay? And then we'll uh, entertain some questions from you all of the panel. All righty? So, Aretta. And she's with again with the Churro Sheep Presidium. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Aretta Begay. I'm from the Navajo Nation. I uh, work and operate uh, on the tribal reservation. And I grew up there, and I grew up on a ranch, so I'm, I'm very familiar with animals. And um, we have a, you know, we work with a lot of ranchers, so we have a similar scope of work as do farmers, and co-ops and so forth. We have, uh, we share the so uh, the similar uh, local indigenous knowledge and and um, you know land stewardship. Uh, in our case, it's animal husbandry and everything. It all is connected. So uh, in our organization, or in our Presidia, we were established in 2006 officially under Slow Meat, and our Navajo Churro sheep breed was inducted into the Ark of Taste, and it's a rare breed. It is... uh, it was endangered, but it's now making it to the threatened level. And it was a sheep breed that was, um, that was, uh, I guess, in an abundance before one of our historical trauma uh, events that we had, known as the Long Walk, where we had to travel on foot for several hundred miles uh, into the state of New Mexico, and we lived there for f- a few years before we were able to return back to our homeland. So unfortunately, during that process, we lost the the sheep, and the government removed and uh, took all of our indigenous the sheep that we had raised and bred for the desert environment, specifically for that environment. And when we returned, uh, it was replaced with other commercial breeds. And uh, at the time, they believed well. They noticed that we were eating the sheep for the, you know, for the meat, and so they said, "Well, there's commercial breeds that." are better in meat. So maybe you guys should just, you know, try this commercial breed. So that's how we were, we lost the, the, the abundance of the sheep breed. And so it became rare in the 1970s. I believe there was a documented, um, count of roughly 800 on the, on the Navajo reservation. And it, it became very rare. 
So there was an animal scientist with the Utah State University who helped us, uh, started the Navajo Sheep Project, and he literally went all across the Navajo Nation. Um, and it he started documenting, uh, just driving down the road and looking at every almost every sheep corral and finding the characteristics of the specific sheep that were still, uh, that may still be around. So he got uh, some sheep producers that were, that still had these flocks in purebred form. So he got them um, to breed more so that they can also create starter flocks so that other local Navajo families could restart this breed. And so our presidium started um, kind of based off of that, um, last uh, project that they had under the Navoshi project. So there was another nonprofit organization that was founded in 1990 or 1991 called the Navajo Lifeway, which I'm the current director for. And we provide um, education around the Navajo churro sheep breed. And we try to um, do a lot of educational and workshop uh, centered around the wool and the textile part of the sheep because the sheep is both our clothing and it's also our meat. So we still, to this day, continue to practice those, um, uh, you know, food, uh, food and textile art. So we, what we do is we have, uh, we establish the Sheep is Life Festival every year in June. We kind of um, bring everybody, whoever, whoever is interested in the sheep breed and in the textile art, we bring them all together, whether you're a goat breeder or a sheep, a commercial sheep breeder, any breed, we bring them to this festival and we, you know, just have a good old time and, and have, uh, you yeah, know, have people experience kind of like a, uh, a informal, kind of like a sheep camp setting, but in a Navajo perspective. So every year we do that in June. So we just had that last month. And we'll have it again next year in June. So you guys can find us on our website, www.navajolifeway.org. And that's where you guys can keep up with uh, some of our latest events. But anyway, and in, in, in the history of uh, the organization, Navajo Lifeway then became uh, sort of the, the forefront for Navajo Churro advocacy. So that's where the Navajo Churro Land Presidium eventually came to play and started establishing a meat market for it. So... <clears throat> We were able to uh, partner with a few other nonprofit entities and other entities. Uh, the American Livestock Conservancy helped us, uh, uh, you know, build awareness around it. Uh, the Slow Food uh, Network, the Slow Meat Organization, uh, helped us put the Navajo Churro uh, sheep onto their Ark of Taste and with the uh, Slow Food Biodiversity Department. So that's a little history behind our uh, Navajo Churro Land Presidium. And to this day, we still continue to practice the traditional butchering styles. Nothing related to the USDA butchering style, which uh, we know a lot of the, if you serve to restaurants or you cater to uh, other places, uh, it is kind of like a mandatory uh, thing to do. So we don't have, our tribe doesn't have a USDA slaughtering facility or uh, an official USDA as a certified kitchen or anything. So a lot of times when we provide workshops, they're either coming out of <clears throat> coming out of the someone's private home or we have it at a local uh, chapter, uh, kind of like a lo local government establishment place. And we actually... Um, provide a lot of traditional demonstrations around the food. We do a lot of plant walks and we uh, do a lot of while edible uh, cooking demos and we cook it with the churro sheep. So we provide a lot of education centered around that. So we continue to do that to this day. Thank you.
Thank you. Loretta, thank you. Thank you. Okay, next on my left here is Rudy Arandando, who is again with the Latino Ranchers and Farmers Association. Thank you, everyone, for coming and uh, for uh, supporting the work that we all do. Uh, my name is Rudy Arredondo. Uh, I come out of the United Farm Workers Union, uh, organizing farm workers in South Texas. When I was a, a teenager, uh, worked with Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta and Gilbert Padilla, uh, worked on a lot of the initiatives, including the only uh, labor, uh, agricultural labor relations uh, board in the entire United States, which is in California. Um, So that is the core group of our organization, which is the National Latino Farmers and Ranchers, which, uh, you know, I had the privilege of founding and to, uh, you know, finance its operations. I don't take a salary. I'm a volunteer. And all the money that uh, in partnerships that we have goes to the field where it's needed. Uh, we work very, uh, very closely on the farm bill. Prior to uh, 2002, the Latino farmers and ranchers had no presence whatsoever. We are on the board of the Rural Coalition, which are the, our mothership and who helped to facilitate uh, the inclusion of our voice into the deliberations and policy and in terms of helping to uh, for us to organize those clusters of farmers that were uh, interested in hearing their voice in terms of uh, policy, agri- food and agriculture policy development. And that's what we work on. I also uh, had the privilege of working during the Carter administration and Farmers Home Administration, so I was a civil rights officer at, and also came back during the uh, Clinton administration and worked on civil rights as well, and very familiar, and I kind of hate to disagree with my colleague, Angela, in terms of attorneys. I have very little, uh, <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm not a big fan of attorneys, <laughs> because they have a tendency to take issues such as the Pickford case, the Garcia case, and then making their making it their own and carrying out strategy that oftentimes is not helpful in bringing negotiations to the table where the farmer, him or herself, are able to put out the possibilities. So organizing at the local level is where it is that we work. And we were instrumental in uh, getting 36 sections of the 2008 Farm Bill okay, for small producers and historically discriminated farmers and ranchers. Uh, We have had uh, also the privilege of having extremely good partnerships, which includes the Rural Coalition, which is, like I said, our mothership. It is the only multi-ethnic, grassroots, community-based organization that deals with the diversity of the farm and ranching communities. Uh, we have, like I said, there's 36 sections, but we also were instrumental in getting uh, legislation to incorporate civil rights, uh, assistant secretary for civil rights at the Department of Agriculture. Also, uh, the Office of Outreach and Advocacy was one of our, uh, you know, one of our, our wins in, in uh, getting 
this. And of course, we are at this time extremely involved in the formulation of, of uh, a farm policy that is uh, directed towards the small producer rather than big agriculture. And, you know, we've had great hopes the past eight years to have been able to establish some uh, better treatment and access to resources to the small producer, but it never happened. And the consequences of the neglect in rural America is the political environment we find ourselves in. Uh, you know, Secretary Vilsack was very much into big agriculture, and I believe that there wasn't a lot of respect for those of us, even though we as small producers of all varieties produce 22% of foodstuff. Okay, uh, the so that we have uh, a relationship with the University of the District of Columbia, and we have uh, now seven years straight a farmers market. We developed, two years ago we developed a um, uh, collaborated and, and formed an urban market in one of the food deserts, uh, community gardens, aquaponics, hothouse, and. Uh, in, in Michigan, for those of you from Michigan, we have a cooperative in Battle Creek called Farmers on the Move, and Michigan State University Extension is one of the partners that we work with, with Filiberto Villagomez, that uh, I think he is now working towards, he's got like statewide opportunities to do some, some work with, with us. Um, and we are working on climate change, and the thing that is important for all of us you know, we are not only the stewards of the land, but we are the first responders to climate events 24-7. That's right. Okay? You, you said this is our asset, whatever, you know, even those folks that are denial about climate impacting us. We've, we've you know, the floods, uh, the droughts, the you know the the failure or the or the lack of of uh, managing the forest, which are the lungs of the land, and those wildfires. We are extremely concerned about the loss of of uh, those forests and what that repre represent. And one of the things that we are working at the present, and I know that there's a Puerto Rican contingent. You know, you import like eighty percent of your food stuff. We want to change that. So we are, at this point, looking in terms of how it is that we're going to collaborate with some of you folks from Puerto Rico to establish a sustainable food system in, in, that, in that island. It's long overdue. And with that. Beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> well, you know, it's so important for elders to describe their work, their legacy, and then our work is to pass it on to the young people. <laughs> so with that in mind, we pass this baton <laughs> over to our dear friend, <laughs> Kai Nguyen from Louisiana. I'm not that young, but uh, <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, so I just want to give a little history. Um, uh, I work with a farmer's cooperative in New Orleans, um, Vietnamese farmer's cooperative. Um, called Veggie. Uh, I just want to give a little bit of history of the Vietnamese community in New Orleans. Um, 
right after the Vietnam War ended in 1975, a lot of Vietnamese refugees came to America and uh, were kind of like they're they're in refugee camps. Uh, most of them throughout the country, but one of the closest one to um, Louisiana was uh, in in Arkansas. And um, the um, Archdiocese of New Orleans invited. Uh, several um, communities, uh, a bunch of members, community members down to New, to New Orleans to kind of resettle um, in, 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 a, in a new um, country, basically. Um, and so these community members that came down, uh, most of them had known each other for a long time because they had um, evacuated together, evacuated together uh, 20 years before that um, from the north, from North Vietnam and, uh, and when they moved to South Vietnam, they were all involved in farming, fishing. And so when those, those uh, communities came to uh, New Orleans, it was very it – was, it was the climate and, and the proximity to the Gulf of Mexico was, it was, uh, made it easier for them to kind of settle, settle, in, settle in. And um, basically as soon as they came to New Orleans, people started farming. People started going fishing. Um, the uh, community members – uh, organized their own um, farmers market a few years after coming to New Orleans, um, and uh, so the place that they settled was actually it's it's urban. It's in New Orleans, but it's kind of on the outskirts of the city. And so when um, it kind of like you know, city government would turn a blind eye to things that happened out there, and which was fine, you know, for for us out there too. Um, so that there's it was a pretty insular community um which was which worked well for for a little while people were farming people were squatting on land that wasn't being used to grow food um but then when um hurricane katrina happened um there was damage in the area and folks had to evacuate but what happened in that community in in the vietnamese community out there was they were actually one of the, the first community to come back to New Orleans in, in large numbers. However, this, because of the proximity to where it was, where the community was, the city, city didn't really understand that or knew that, uh, didn't know that. And when they were redeveloping the plan to rebuild the city, basically that whole area was slated to become green space. And so for the first time, so so a lot of community leaders got together and for the first time we had uh, folks basically, you know, well, I shouldn't say this, older, older folks that <laughs> never left the community went and picketing, picketing, um, city hall, um, showing, you know, people that we were back. I, I kind of skipped a part, but the big, the main reason we were picketing city hall, not only the, uh, that not only did the city not, um, take into consideration that our community had come back, but, um, the mayor at the time he had a he had made an executive decision to place the landfill that had all the debris from Katrina uh, about like a mile away from our community. So, and 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 for 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 us, so for for our community, that was an environmental um, justice issue. But a lot uh, is connected to farming also because a lot of our, our there are a lot of canals that come into our community, and a lot, a lot of the um, community members use that those canals to, to irrigate, um, some of the farms that they were, they were, um, uh, using. So I, and, and, and the, uh, 
and, and that landfill was in proximity with, with the waterways heading into the uh, community. And so we, we, um, we definitely had to organize community members uh, together. Like I said, folks became civically engaged for the first time um, since they came to America, basically. Um, we, we, we started getting uh, people registered to vote, showing people, hey, this is a community that, you know, if, if we, can, we can rally a lot of uh, community members together to, like, you know, voice our own opinion and, like, show our political will, basically. Um, and, uh, yeah, and so, you know, we, got, we, we were able to get the landfill shut down, um, and things were going okay for a few years, and then um, the BPO oil spill happened, and uh, a lot of our uh, community members, uh, as I mentioned earlier, got into fishing as soon as they came into came down to move moved down to the to Louisiana, and so they'd been in, you know, their whole some of them their whole like experience in in in, in America was as a fisherman, you know. So basically, overnight with the oil spill there. Um, livelihoods were, were basically lost. Uh, and so that was a huge, uh, uh, imp- had a huge impact on our community. And so with, with, the, with Katrina and with the oil spill, um, our organization, we, we, we kind of saw an opportunity to kind of like take the knowledge and take the passion that uh, our community had for farming to, um, to form a veggie farmers cooperative, which is, um, um, a group of farmers together, we help them um, uh, find uh, land, uh, help them build up farms, help them sell um, their produce to markets to earn income, um, to kind of like have supplemental income for themselves. Um, and so we, at, at, at the beginning, we started this in, nine, in, a, in 2011. So it's a year after the BPO was built. And so when we first started, we had a lot of folks that were, were in the fishing industry. So, um, you know they were kind of supplementing their income that that was that was lost because of, of the oil spill. Nowadays, most of those folks have gone back to fishing full time, which is in, in a sense good because they they can they can uh, you know um, sustain themselves um, by then. But we still do have um, uh, community members in in the farmers cooperative. Um, we uh, are hoping um, to expand. Right now, we we only have about an acre, pretty small. Um, we're hoping to expand to about three or four acres within the next year uh, and to have more and more community members involved. And, uh, and yeah, and to, to your, to your question uh, about collaboration, we've also worked, we tried to work with, um, most of our farmers are retirees or, or above 55. Um, but we're, we've, we've worked with, uh, youth organizations to kind of teach them about food justice give them plots on our farm to, to, uh, experiment on their own. Um, and hopefully, you know, we can have that intergenerational knowledge exchange, um, going forward too. Okay. Very good. Very good. Very good. Now I just want to make a little, a little thought. Uh, we had a session yesterday that was called aligning the good food movement and the food justice movement. I've been involved in food justice work for about 40 years. And we have always loved good food. Okay? We've always loved delicious food, healthy food, and made it a part of our work. So in that sense, those of us who are doing work around food justice, we're already 
have embraced the good food movement. So I think it's more of a question of whether those who are involved in primarily the good food movement are ready to embrace, extend themselves to be a part of this most important movement on the globe, I think. This whole argument in D.C. about the health care bill is really about food and ag. Why are our costs so expensive? Because we subsidize what is unhealthy. So, I'm going to pass that on. So, it's, a, it's one of the most, it's not the most important question on the globe today. It's around food and ag. So, part of our effort today at the panel and this first question about collaboration, partnerships, networks, was to encourage all of us as we go back home and continue our work that we will commit ourselves, dedicate ourselves to be more collaborative, to network more, especially with those organizations, those law professors, entities that are working in and around the food justice kind of questions. Okay? But collaboration, networking, partnerships, that's what is how the earth operates anyway. That's how agriculture is possible. So we're just saying as humans that we're trying to catch up with, get in alignment with how the earth works. We think we're separate from the mother. So, but be in alignment. Be about partnerships, collaboration. Now, I'm going to ask the panel to spend about maybe two minutes just throwing out their work in the future, where they want to be, say, in five years. And once we do that, then we're going to open up uh, with some questions from you all. Is that okay? Okay. So we're going to begin back with Angela. Even though she's retired, she has already a plan. <laughs> Uh, well, one of the things that I hope to be doing in five years is this fall, um, my law school is setting up the first water justice clinic, we believe, in the United States. And it's primarily geared towards helping disadvantaged communities across California, but especially in the Central Valley, which is the agricultural section of California, who lack access to clean water. Um, a lot of the... Um, Toxins are from agricultural runoff. A lot of the communities are farm worker communities, and they're overwhelmingly communities of color. So um, we were fortunate enough to get money from the state of California to fund this clinic. And one of the things that I want to do now that we have an attorney and um, law students working on this project is to, to build it out so that we can be a full-service um, law center for farm worker communities and for small farmers. Um, so my vision is not just about water and access to water resources, but also access to land, pesticide drift issues, and at some point, um, help with uh, farming as well um, from a progressive 
perspective. Um, it's a little bit dif- dicey at University of California Davis because we are a big ag school and big ag. So uh, the progressive stuff has to kind of hover in the corner and hope that the big boys don't pay too much attention to us. But that's my vision. Okay, so for for the next five years with the Navajo Trail Land Presidium, uh, we hope to see uh, a bigger market at least expand on the all over the Navajo Nation, and hopefully we do have at least uh, no more than a dozen uh, small grocery stores or convenience stores that do sell some sort of meat. So we have within our group some discussions that maybe we could possibly. Um, try to get our meat into the stores or in, in some way form some packaging, creative packages for that for that type of uh, market. So um, the other interesting part about it is because both um, our scope of work not only focuses on the meat, it also focuses on the wool. Our, our cultural heritage is centered around textile art. Navajo rugs are kind of one of the big, um, a big an- antiquity out there. So uh, some of the earlier rugs that were woven um, before, before, you know, I mean, this goes back like over 500 years and we've always woven our rugs with Navajo turtle wool. So we'd like to see at some point uh, to sell the meat and the wool together as kind of like a package. You never know. There could be knitters and crocheters or weavers out there that could also um, eat lamb meat while they're knitting, you know. So uh, we we want to create some something creative that way because a lot of our scope of work is always combining both of them. And in our culture and in most indigenous cultures, I'm sure are similar, we don't waste anything. Everything we utilize on that animal is used, whether the horns or the hooves or whatever we eat or use them as tools. And uh, we even eat it, eat the bone marrows. We make blood sausage. So there's a lot of things that are associated with the animal. And there, of course, there's stories and creation stories behind that. There are prayers and songs that are associated with the high, the whole entire process of raising the animal to when you're slaughtering it. We do have a sort of a blessing before you slaughter the animal. We provide those teachings within our within our organization. So we continue to teach that. So we would love we'd love to see that. And for us, language is also a key component to our our cultural survival. And so we need to continue teaching the youth and bringing in more um, younger, the younger generation to interact with the elders to continue learning the language. Because everything we know, our entire ancestral knowledge and our food knowledge, our land, the the knowledge about land and everything and life in general is all embedded in our, in our language. So it is very important for us to sustain that. So we'd love to see that continue. And we would love to continue working with other chefs, indigenous chefs. We do uh, on occasion collaborate with uh, a few and they usually uh, help us promote the churro uh, meat on, you know, when we do small little tasting events or workshops. So in the future, we'd like to see... um, the continuation of that. And we also want to, um, we are, we're trying to start our own Navajo Churro, uh, registry for Navajo producers only. There are, there is an organization association called the Navajo Churro Sheep Association, but it's run by non-Navajos and it, it the perspective from their organization, their association is 
com- it's almost uh, straying from our heritage, from our culture. And with our own history and with our with the sheep's history, there are four four different breeds of the churro that are true to the original breeds that we've had. So uh, we're trying to raise awareness and trying to create our own label and establishing that. We've just um, collaborated with one of the registrars on the on the organization with the association, the official association, and she's allowing us to create a label and a name, and and labeling it um, in our in our own language at uh, the bay. So it's it basically in our language it's called the sheep, and that's just uh, you know that's the the name we have for the sheep. So we want to put that label onto our meat and or for the churro producers, so that when they register it that you know, they can have proof that this is an authentic sheep. So we want to create our own, um, within our little grassroots organization to keep, keep that registry or start that registry and sustain that as well and get more breeders to, to breed that. Uh, this, this year alone, we registered at least close to 500. Uh, last year, there was only one Navajo producer registered under the Navajo Churro Sheep Association. And the rest were uh, churro producers that were off the reservation everywhere from Maine to California. And they're not in in our uh, culture and our from our tribal perspective, they're not true. I mean, they are coming from the churro producers, but they're not living on the same land or eating the same uh, herb, medicinal herbs, and um, while edible plants that it's native from from the desert southwest. So we'd like to see that continuation. Thank, Thank you. you. Rudy. Well, you know, the uh, organization that, uh, uh, organization, Latino Farmers Association, we have about 95,000 members nationwide. But in addition to that, we collaborate with, uh, we're members of RCAF, which is the independent, independent beef producers. We work very closely with uh, Bill Bullard and uh, also with uh, the sheep producers, which is a National Family Farm uh, Alliance at Pet Tool is the chair of, and they have something like 90,000. So we work on, we work in collaboration with that. And, you know, just in terms of our being here, we are looking to put together a legislative package that is a Marshall Plan for Rural America. Uh, You know, I I think that this is an opportune moment to do it, uh, and we would appreciate the support because we're going, to, we're writing this package as we speak, and it is important for us to ensure that those small producers. You know, we are not Cargill, we are not Tyson's, we are not in that league, nor do we want to be. Because one of the things that I detest is the monetization of food, and that's what's been happening all along. And that is important for us to be, remain conscious because that concentration is not about feeding anybody. It's about profiteering from starvation, you know, uh, situation. And that's not how it is that we are going to function. Uh, food is uh, a lifeline. We want to ensure that our water remains cleaned and that it is uh, it's a public resource that is not there for privatization. 
we were working against uh, fracking. We stand with the Standing Rock. We were privileged to be a part of that. We work with the tribes. We work with the Hmong farmers. We have a fairly good unit up in uh, Fresno, California, of both Latino and Hmong farmers, uh, also in Minnesota and Wisconsin. And we help them with advocate because a lot of the issues have to do with cultural uh, a lack of, of knowledge in terms of how to navigate in in a capitalist U- United States of America, you know, where the the moral standards have taken a dive. You know, they've been abandoned. We got to reclaim that moral uh, space because that's what we need to do as human beings in terms of helping one another. So I'm uh, being talking to some of the uh, slow food uh, folks in terms of collaboration. Please come to our events. I mean, we come to yours. We have, uh, this is, I think, our third or fourth time. And we would love to see you. We are going to be having one right here September uh, 14th through the 16th, uh, Irene Vilar, who has the Latino Eco Festival, is having a four-day in which we have a multifaceted approach to environmental uh, land grabs, finding, and this is an international event as well, and we're co-sponsoring that. So I appreciate if, uh, you know, Slow Food would uh, have a, a robust presence there. And in December, the Rural Coalition and the National Latino Farmers and Ranchers are going to be having our gala event at the National Press Club. We're members of the National Press Club. I used to be a journalist, uh, but I prefer my advocacy on behalf of agriculture and farmers and ranchers. It's, it's my chosen, uh, I, you know, I, not that I dislike the journalist piece, but um, I prefer my hands, getting my hands, uh, you know, dirty and looking at how we can make a fair and just system from the fields to the table. So that's our vision. Um, so for us, um, right now, this summer, we're in the middle of trying to find or find financing to um, acquire a new land for farm expansion to c- get more community members involved in our cooperative. And um, the expansion would also include a commercial kitchen because we do have uh, community members that make um, – we have a lady in our cooperative that makes tofu and we sell it to restaurants and things like that. Now we might be able to do it legitimately to uh, – supermarkets and stuff um and then we have other folks that in the, in the community that make a lot of um cultural vietnamese dishes that you'd never really see in, in in restaurants but they're amazing food um so that's that's um hopefully we had to figure out that out by this summer but if we do then you know within the next five years we would have that new uh, development that new farm up and also we we would be building it right next to a health clinic that um our, uh, the, the nonprofit organization that started the cooperative also runs. And so we would be doing um, kind of like healthy eating uh, um, programs with uh, uh, clients of the clinic. Um, in, in the Vietnamese community, there's a, a lot of um, incidences of diabetes. Um, so figuring out programs, uh, ways to like kind of 
promote um, uh, healthy eating programs with, with the farm and, 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 and the clinic as well. And, um, and going also, I want to talk about what Rudy um, was saying earlier about the um, farmers and, and uh, other folks being like at the forefront, uh, feeling the um, effects of uh, climate change. Uh, so in Louisiana, we're also dealing with a lot of uh, coastal erosion. Um, it's probably at probably the area that's most at risk in the world actually right now with uh, land loss and uh, so because a lot of our Vietnamese community members are involved in the fishing industry, they're, they're going to be heavily uh, affected by uh, coastal erosion and also like the coastal restoration projects that the state has um, uh, kind of planned for. Um, and so our organi- organization is going to be working um, to try to get um, our uh, Vietnamese folks as prepared for that as, as, as possible. So that's what we're working on. Thank you. Thank you. All righty. How about that? Wow. So uh, who would like to um, ask a question, uh, make a comment relative to what you've heard today, uh, questions, thoughts? As you're working on the question, let me um, do a quick look back. We talked about what's the vision. Yes, ma'am. Or something like that, but how is the how is the current situation in Washington affecting your work? I mean, what what are you up against right now? Like right now, yeah. There, there is at this time. There's all types of confusion. We're dealing with a two percent across the board budget cut because. the Secretary Purdue came in at after the budget had been submitted to the Congress, so that he is had basically no input with regard to the formulation of that policy of it, that uh, ag- uh, that um, budget. No idea. And, you know, no idea because everybody in, is in paralysis mode uh, in Washington, D.C., because of the fact that they don't know how the administration is going to react from one minute to the next. Uh, so the, to us, that's that's uh, to us, that's, uh, you know, it is what it is. But our because we have to dedicate our efforts on the ground. You can't build any kind of thing from the top down. We are a grassroots organization, and as such, we our job is to strengthen our our membership in terms of what it is that they need. So then, then we can translate it into legislative language and incorporate it into in terms of what it is going to be our marker bill that we will submit to both in the House and the Senate. And we already spoken with with you know we already spoken with people who are willing to sponsor, and we work across the board. You know, um, we just had also the privilege of working of uh, being a part of the of the Agri Women 
fly-in that was done two and a half weeks ago. You know, they, they, this is their first fly-in. And it was wonderful to see that these women farmers had their act together and, and their ability to uh, bring the policymakers to their meeting, okay, which we have had like a mixed success. Mostly they don't show up. So, but so the things are right now in flux. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Uh, but we can, you know, we we have to fo- go move on forward and put our priorities and our wishes in in terms of that marker bill that for small producers. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. Just quickly, like so, we um, we were working with the USDA to um, to talk about a specific grant. Um, that had been available every year before this, but um, the USDA program officers like feel like we would be perfect for this. It's a value-added product uh, grant, but I, I, maybe because of the new administration, that grant's not being released yet. Where in the last few years it has been um, available, like in, in in the spring or something. So great. Okay. Raise your hand, folks. Okay. Yes, right here. Um, this, I guess, what is, what have you guys found to be the most effective community outreach, um, within the really undeserved and underrepresented populations? Um, how do you empower them to reclaim their culture? Well, first, first, they have, first people have to understand where it is that they are. Uh, I mean, one of our uh, most difficult is to inform folks in terms of what it is that they don't know. They don't know what they don't know. Uh, empowerment is a means in terms of your knowledge base. And that's what we've had to do at the, because a lot of our farmers were not, uh, knowledgeable that there's farm programs, there's, you know, for conservation, for operating loans, for, uh, facilities, at the community level, you know, infrastructure, those kinds of things. So you have to bring them up to par and you go from there. And But it's up to the community to do an inventory of their respective community to ensure that they're going to uh, address and make a plan for those needs that they have at their community. You know, you know, I mean, we're, we're facilitators. We facilitate and we provide knowledge and information and technical assistance as, as needed. So I don't know whether that addresses your question, but that's how we operate. I mean, well, okay. Uh, so for, for our organization, um, I wouldn't say it was easy to um outreach or organized, but um, we we needed them to ha- already have that commitment or, or passion for agriculture. I, I'm not a farmer myself. I didn't teach them anything, you know, so if we didn't have them already interested in, in, in the uh, um, kind of like f- farming aspects of it, um, we it wouldn't have worked. But for us, like uh, what we wanted to do was, um, this goes back to Katrina, uh, we, we re- really wanted to have like a community-led um, 
uh, redevelopment plan. So what we did was whatever we want, we, we focused our, our efforts on, it was what the community wanted. And so we, we did like focus groups and things like that, like how, where, how did people want to go for, how do people want to redevelop? And so like, they're the ones that start with the, hey, we want to do an urban farming project. We wanted to do a community farm. And so from there, we just went to see on our end, like how, how can we make that happen? So. Great. We're going to have Catherine add some ideas from Detroit. Uh, Jim talked about inviting people to be allies uh, with all of us and in the movement. Um, and sometimes that's very difficult for people who aren't a part of people of color and communities to figure out how to do in a respectful way, but in a powerful way. So I would like to ask any of the panel to comment on how do people who are not a part of your community and a part of your history and your experience become allies with you in a strong but respectful way? Uh, but I kind of move beyond this question of us versus them, okay? And I just I try to work because the work is exciting, it's joyful, but it's about a holistic approach to our communities. It's about this integrated systems approach, and it's about approaching people and not saying, well, because you're this or that, then I can't relate to you and talk to you and, and welcome you in to what we're doing. So after so many years, that's what works for me, is to reach in every sector, federal, state government, local government, county government, you know, men, women, folks of every ethnicity, in the jails, in the prisons, because all the work is, is, is there. So, uh, yes, yes, please, yes. Um, I, I wanted to say a little bit about that, too, because it, it really raises a question that is central to teaching in a law school, because I'm often teaching people who have layers of academic privilege, layers of financial privilege, and often ethnic privilege that don't map up with the communities that they want to serve. And so that's a big question, like, how do I serve? How do I use my knowledge in a way that's going to be helpful to people um, rather than become um, kind of... Um, solidify the reputation that Rudy mentioned of lawyers who come in and they want to run in everything and they think they know better than everybody else and they just take it over. And that it's a fair criticism because that's what happens. So for us, I think, and I'm thinking about the Water Justice Clinic in particular, um, we also have to train our young lawyers in community lawyering, which is about paying attention to what the community wants. So they talked about the inventory. Um, you can do mappings of communities. But it's basically about going in and being humble and saying, you all are the experts on what has happened to you, what your history is, and what you need. We are not the experts. We're there to help facilitate what you want, and we're here to listen. And if people go in with that attitude of humility and respect, I think it really starts off the collaboration in a strong way, as opposed to coming in and saying, well, I know everything, and now I'm going to teach you how to do this and that, how to garden, how to eat, et cetera, et cetera. So. You know, one of our most successful collaborations has been with the University of the District of Columbia's uh, College of Agriculture. 
the collaboration in terms of the development and the support of our farmer's market, seven years now, uh, the putting together that urban farm in that food desert. Uh, we also are working towards uh, developing a, a career track where we bring in young people from the hinterlands to come and learn about agriculture. We've already joined urban and rural. The University of the District of Columbia is the only land-grant college that is dedicated to urban agriculture. And that's really, really important to us uh, because urban, ag- or urban folks have a tremendous amount of political juice that rural communities do not have. Uh, you know, that, uh, the, the situation in rural America is in dire need of having some, some what you, they used to have. They used to pretty much dictate what urban or our agricultural policy was to be. Not anymore, because the representatives, elected representatives, gravitate to where they have all the amenities, broadband access, office space, you know, all of this. And the rural folks have to travel uh, to have a, se- uh, a sit-down with their their elected officials, at least a, at least an hour, two hours, and and as those of you who are farming know, we can't afford. If the weather is good, we got to take care of our crops. We got to take care of our animals. It's a twenty four seven. You know, this is there's no vacation from agriculture. You know, we have to take care of our livelihood, and so. Those collaborations with with the university, we also have a practicum that we're looking in terms of some scholars, scholarly uh, writings from the universities. That validates our situation. All those PhDs, all those PhDs uh, that uh, we want to make sure that they just don't sit on a on a shelf. We want to have input. Okay, you're going to write about us in terms of rural America. We, you need to consult with us because we are the experts. We're the ones that have to live that kind of of a of a lifestyle. So don't don't come in and I'm not I'm not your your zoo. Okay, <laughs> so you come you 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 know my father used to said you, if your friends come in they're going to work with you. So they didn't come because <laughs> they, they knew they, had, they, they would come and visit and take my time. You know, my time was had to be dedicated to the chores and that that are a part of living in in a rural community. And that's fine. That's good. I want to add to Rudy because we're the same way. I mean, we work with a land grant office uh, at a local college nearby where we're where we're at, and we um, also uh, do a lot of food sovereignty events. And that's where we engage with a lot of other non-Navajo uh, com- community members, or either they're coming in from outside the reservation, coming in to experience our culture or hear about our foods, uh, hearing about everything, our food culture, our our pastoral way of life and everything. So usually we encounter a lot of these folks at our food sovereignty events, workshops, 
And we have our Sheep is Life Festival, which we open it up to everyone, even all the way to the international global level. So we bring in uh, other pastoralists from other cultures who share similar life ways with us and to also try to engage and, and, and make sure that everybody understands that pastoralism is, is a global thing. It's not just our culture, but there's other cultures we share that with. So, um, and then, you know, like you said, elders, uh, we bring in a lot of elders. Um, you know, we don't work with a lot of PhD folks, but we occasionally do get in folks who claim their expertise in this because they read it in a book or they, they study, they try to study it, but in reality, uh, our, our our traditions and our cultures are are with our elders. So we always, you know, honor the elders that are working with us and we consult with them all the time. So we always recommend that, you know, they listen to us and see what we have to say before, you know, working with us. And we always encourage them to to at least um, experience some of the things that we offer. I mean, we do... Um, uh, what we call sheep hikes, trailing of the sheep sometimes. Um, we uh, just recently did that uh, a month ago. Um, our board president hosted a sheep walk up the mountain, and I thought it was just a sheep walk, but it was actually a strenuous hike along a canyon that had the trickling river along the entire way. So the sheep, he has at least 400 heads of sheep, and goats. So we, uh, the sheep knew where to go, and they seasonally do this every year. They go up uh, in, in in the early summer and come down in the fall. So along the way, he was educating us about the mountain medicinal plants. So we got more than just just a, a hike out of it. We had a traditional uh, uh, plant walk out of it. So we were harvesting tobacco along the way, or there was some sage there, or there was um, other other wild herbs that grow up there and root systems that, you know, that you only can find in the in the mountain areas. So we were we were able to whoever was able to experience that walk got to see the traditional pastoral life way that our Navajo people have been doing for centuries. So. I guess it's kind of a, a, I just want to add a comment into kind of what we're doing right now. I'm on the Slow Food Board. I'm on the Seattle chapter. Something that we're really concerned about is the education and recruitment of young people into food and gardening and farming. Angela mentioned that sometimes young Latinos, Asians, Native Americans may be reluctant and African Americans may be reluctant to come into farming given the history that they experienced. So something that one perspective we work on, it's actually sprung out from our children's uh, school garden program, is to look at how do we broaden that and make it more inclusive to look at the next generation. And we've, we've been partnering with the University of Washington and with uh, Seattle Tilt, which is really kind of a, uh, the gardening expert in the, in, the, in the area, and put in a proposal to the National Science Foundation to teach garden education. <clears throat> we started that process about four years ago, didn't pass the first go-around, and a month ago, it just got accepted. We got this grant for nearly $3 million to put garden education into national science standard to be adopted. And what made this particular science standard different from all the other proposals is a garden education with a cultural perspective. It's a look at how do we teach garden education that we can talk about the three sisters, that we can talk about the Macau Z potato in the in Pacific Northwest. How do we get children to grow bok choy instead of just growing kale? You know, and then right away that it, 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 it broadens the, the understanding 
understanding of the culture of food, and it, it also empowers children of color to understand their food history and acknowledge their, you know, cultural background. And again, this is literally just this just got accepted just a month ago. We're going to start piloting in three schools in the Seattle area and just slowly roll out. But ultimately, the goal is to this is going to be applied to the national standard for the Science Foundation. And it's really exciting. It's a roundabout way, but it's really important because one thing that we recognize is that it's really hard to convince the next generation of people to come into, to come into farming. And, and I think it's just recognizing that, empowering them and, and recognizing them. So part of that is that, you know, it's just still literally from the ground up. And, I, you know, it's one of the effort that, that, that Slow Food is doing. But I welcome input from you all. I'm not the garden expert, but I'm trying to work with these educators from a cultural perspective and trying to work in the arc of taste and say why these food has history and meaning. So thank you. I just had a question back to him, but... densities and uh, what have you with regard to your uh, soils uh, and and the building of your soils and what is uh, within your narrative there to the National Science Foundation, uh, what was the narrative uh, kind of in relation to that? Uh, because, I mean, for example, I mean, and that's really important because people do need to know what their food is and, 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 and the nu- nutritional contents. I mean, you may have organic and what have you, but that doesn't tell you the nu- nutritional content of your food. Uh, and so, you know, what about that? I mean, how, you know, if we're talking about, you know, feeding uh, uh, youth, children in schools and what have you, uh, the whole nutritional uh, question and what have you uh, with, with relation to that. I mean, the, what is the difference in the type of farming approaches that are being proposed there and, and what have you? What I want to do is close out this session <laughs> and just... Um, Feel free to come up and and ask questions, things like that. So we're closing out, and I hope that you all will all go home and go to your screen printing company and have them make a T-shirt that asks this question on the back and wear it. Because, of course, we're not experts, but we have been blessed, haven't we, to have Angela, Aretta, Rudy, and Kai. Let's give them a hand once again. (laughs) 